All right, everyone. So I want to welcome you to the CVIC on the Go, which is an educational podcast focusing on key topics relevant to the management of CVICU patients. Today's topic is acute aortic disease, and we are excited to have Dr. Josh Beckman as our expert discussant. Dr. Beckman, thank you so much for being here today. It's a real pleasure to be here, uh, and I can't wait to just jump right into this topic. Awesome. All right, so here's our case. Miss N, who's a 60-year-old lady who presented to the ED after being awoken from sleep with ripping, non-remitting chest pain and back pain. This pain radiated to her lower extremities. Has had dyspnea on exertion for the last two months and dull chest pain not related to any activities. New lower extremity edema during this time. No PND or orthopnea. She has chronic back pain. She's otherwise a smoker. She's an 80-pack year history. No alcohol or drug use. Her home meds are morphine, zofran, and omeprazole. In the ED, her vitals, her temp is 37.1, her heart rate is 120, blood pressure 124 over 92 on the left arm, and on the right arm 118 over 85, respiratory rate of 25, setting 81% room air. She is in no acute distress. She's tachycardic, regular rate and rhythm, no murmurs, her pulmonary exam, her auscultation bilaterally, no crackles, her abdomen is soft. She does have lower extremity edema, right greater than left. Pulses, she has one plus radial pulses in the upper extremities and one plus DP and PT pulses in the lower extremities bilaterally. So Dr. Beckman, how would you approach the initial differential for this patient? Importantly, what physical exam findings should we be looking for when considering aortic disease? Well, Dr. Holder, I have to say that usually when I read CPCs, I want to see if I can guess the diagnosis from either the first line or the title of the piece. And obviously, we're talking about aortic disease. And so I'm going to talk uh, a little bit here about clues that someone who comes in with this kind of severe uh, chest and back pain has aortic disease rather than something else. The three things that are emergencies that everybody thinks about when they first meet a patient like this are uh, myocardial infarction, a large pulmonary embolism, or some kind of aortic disease, whether it's aortic dissection or intramural hematoma. The clue that was given to us, the uh, tearing chest pain, is one of those things which I would really like to remove from our common description of aortic disease pain. Why? Because actually that's a minority of the descriptions of, of pain associated with aortic dissection. The most specific description that you can have is the worst sudden onset of pain. It is terrible from the get-go. It is though a thunderclap hits somebody. And in the IRAD data set, 90% of the people reported the very worst set of pains all of a sudden, and the other 10% fainted. There are a couple of clues as to where the disease is. Obviously, if it's down to the abdomen and into the legs, and it seems like it's dissecting all the way around, but chest pain is more consistent with a type A dissection, and Back pain is more consistent with a type B dissection. We'll talk about those, I guess, a little bit later about their locations. There's a lot of overlap, and the Venn diagram is not completely separate. Finally, the physical examination, there are a whole bunch of things that are really important, and you need to do a complete physical examination cardiovascularly. One, pulses in both arms and both feet are, are really important. There is a prognostic impact for every pulse that you lose. Secondly, you want to listen for bruise in the abdomen, for example, uh, and in the neck, because uh, one of the mechanisms of death for a type A dissection is dissection into the great vessels into the head, causing, uh, causing 
some kind of cerebrovascular event. And obviously we didn't have a conversation about their pupils, the awakeness, uh, any neurologic defects. Finally, the most uh, powerful predictor of death is uh, renal dysfunction. Uh, I don't know exactly why that is, but we published that a long time ago from the IRAD data set as well. And so I'm going to want to take a listen to the abdomen to see if I hear new bruits from the uh, aorta or into the branch vessels in the abdomen as well. Finally, um, it's really important just to look at the patient. And by that I mean we are taught early in our careers that you should be able to walk into the room and make the following judgment. Sick, not sick. Patients who have an acute aortic syndrome look really sick and they are anxious and they are in pain. Uh, and that is a tip-off clue. Now we have some labs and some other tests back. So we at least have an ECG, which is sinus tech. There's some non-specific T-wave inversions and some Q-waves in V1 through V3. And at least from a lab standpoint, we have a creatinine of 0.5, a negative troponin, a BNP of 1,000, white count of 12.5, hemoglobin of 15.2, a lactate of 1, total cholesterol back as well of 83, and an LDL of 27. It certainly looks like there's a mixed picture of events going on here. Uh, the patient's description of shortness of breath for the last couple of months in the setting of an elevated BNP and more particularly in the setting of lower extremity edema makes me wonder if the patient ha is retaining volume for some reason, whether it's renal insufficiency, although it doesn't look like it is, um, or they're having they have congestive heart failure that's currently undiagnosed, or perhaps there's liver disease, for example. That said, I don't think any of these laboratories are indicative specifically. And, you know, there are other laboratories that people are examining for, to make the diagnosis of aortic dissection, like a D-dimer and smooth muscle myosin. These, I think, are still not uh, ready for prime time in the diagnosis of aortic dissection, but they are being tested. Because of the description of her chest pain, Ms. N had a CT angiography of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. And what they found was a type B intramural hematoma extending into the suprarenal aorta with termination at the juxtarenal level, intraluminal thrombus in the infrarenal abdominal aorta extending to the level of the bifurcation. They also saw some cardiomegaly and pulmonary edema with pleural effusions. In this case, CT angiography was chosen as the initial imaging modality. Can you comment on the use of CT and other imaging modalities such as ultrasound or MRI, the pros and cons of these modalities? Yeah, I think either axial imaging modality, CTA or MRA, can give you a very nice delineation of what's going on with aortic pathology, and they're used very commonly. Uh, I, most of the time now, people are using CTA. Why? Because there's a CAT scanner in almost every emergency department in the United States. Uh, and secondly, I don't think it would ever be appropriate for someone you're considering an aortic dissection to be sent into an MRI tube for 45 minutes and observed. I commonly use MRI if it's a case where the CT scanner doesn't see it and I want, in the right institution, a higher fidelity image in a local space. It is, at the earliest, my backup study. There's nothing wrong with getting an echocardiogram. You should just know you're going to miss a lot of aortic dissections. A transesophageal echocardiogram is, again, a perfectly reasonable approach to take a look at what's going on basically through most of the aorta in the chest. But I also I think just the delay in getting it done, the speed at which the test can be completed, the requirements for anesthesia, all are things that I'm are perfectly fine if that's what you need to do, but it becomes my second choice for CT scanning. Now, the one thing you do get with an echocardiogram is an understanding of valvular function, 
and seeing what's happening with the aortic valve, and that can be particularly important. You can get a lot of that by doing a physical examination, and your CT scanner will probably let you know if there's tamponade or there's at least pericardial fluid that's uh, developing. But that is the one benefit of an echocardiogram over the other modalities. Finally, you mentioned that this goes all the way down into the abdomen, right? We're not going to get that from a transesophageal echocardiogram. Right. And then I will say the, this is an intramural hematoma, and we can talk about what that means coming forward, but those can be harder to see by uh, an ultrasonographic method. Not impossible. It can be done by good groups. But to pick up a type B with a TEE, I think, would be a bit more difficult than using the other modalities. So mentoring type B, can you go ahead and discuss the importance of type A versus type B pathology, kind of those physical exam findings that you'd be clued into, important imaging findings, and then from there discuss rupture, dissection, intramural hematoma, or penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer? Yeah, of course. So. Uh, there are really two scoring systems, and the one that I use comes from Stanford, and I use it because it's simple, and I'm a simple man. There's a type A and type B, and type A involves the ascending aorta, and type B doesn't. From there, you can make very important initial decisions. Basically, all acute type A dissections have to be repaired uh, surgically, and uh, type B then splits into whether or not there are complications of the type B dissection. There's ischemia to organs, there's compromise of the limbs, there's something else that's going on where you want to do it, or, and I don't want to say it's uncomplicated, because obviously it's a severe problem, but there's no acute complication that requires invasive management. When you have type Bs, the management, medically speaking, in the beginning is the same, right? It's blood pressure control, it's pain control, it's heart rate control. It's commonly a beta blocker first, and then maybe the addition of some kind of alpha blocker or vasodilator like nipride once you make sure there's no possibility for rebound uh, tachycardia. The pathology is a really interesting question. So our understanding of where these acute aortic syndromes come from has advanced a bit over the last couple of decades. An aortic dissection, is, uh, as we all know, is a tear in the wall of the aorta and then there's bleeding in the wall that gets what we think advanced as a result of the pulsatile force of the heart. Interestingly, it can also go backwards, so you can have a tear distally that then comes back into the ascending aorta, and that should be treated like a type A dissection. An intramural hematoma is the rupture of really small blood vessels within the wall of the aorta, and then you have bleeding from inside the wall, and it's my guess that a lot of them start that way, and then with the, basically the force of the bleeding inside of the wall cannot be contained, and it ruptures through to the lumen, creating a dissection. In the United States, Western Europe, most of North and South America, the prognosis of an intramural hematoma has exactly the same prognosis as a dissection in the same location and should be treated that way. There is some data from the Far East, Korea, Japan, where it does not seem like it is as lethal a disease and they treat it a bit differently. Penetrating atherosclerotic ulcers can participate as well here. If you have a very deep atherosclerotic ulcer, it could cause an aortic dissection by going through the different layers and creating an opening into the vessel from the lumen. The problem is penetrating atherosclerotic ulcers can also be discovered incidentally as a result of imaging for another process. So the way that I usually think about them is that if you investigated the chest because someone was having symptoms from the chest, 
and you find it, then I think it's a problem. If you found it because someone was having follow-up scanning for their small, weird, speculated lesion in their lungs, then I don't really think it is an active thing that you have to treat right now. So type A, ascending aorta, type B, basically everywhere else, surgery up front for type A, medicines to start in type B, intervention if you need it. For most of the folks who will be listening to this podcast, intramural hematoma is equal to aortic dissection and outcomes and the requirements for treatment. So beyond hypertension, what are some of the unique causes of aortic pathology that we should all be aware of? Yeah, that's a great question. And hypertension is really a hard one because, like, everybody has it. Um, it is so rife in the population, particularly in the older populations, that, I, yes, it's an association, but I'm really not sure how much of a contributor it is. It's probably a small contributor to a lot of people. I think the things that you have to think about are folks who have connective tissue disorders, particularly genetically acquired ones, uh, collagen disturbances, Marfan, Lois Dietz, uh, everything that you can find on the aortopathy panel, those folks have a particularly increased risk. I also think one of the areas that as medical people we don't think of right away is the iatrogenic cause. Someone who's recently had open heart surgery or aortic surgery can actually develop an aortic dissection. There are much rarer causes after that. Patients who have aneurysms are predisposed to having an aortic dissection. You can have aneurysms for a variety of reasons, whether it's vasculitis or uh, an infection, for example. But really, the most of them are basically because we don't know. So back to our patient. She had a type B intramural hematoma. So how should we think about that initial medical management for her in terms of her blood pressure and heart rate goals, blood pressure medication management? What about drugs when her hypertension is refractory to beta blockers alone? Uh, perfect. So. The easy way to think about it is you want to get the heart rate below 60 with a beta blocker first. I don't care if you want to use IV metoprolol, intravenous, esmolol. It doesn't really matter. I want a short-acting drug that you can give a lot and titrate. The problem with esmolol is only in its uh, how long you're going to use it because it comes with a pretty impressive fluid load, which I'd be a little bit hesitant with in this patient who seems like they also may have heart failure. They certainly have edema and shortness of breath. Once you get the heart rate below 60, that's when I would begin to use nipride to bring down the blood pressure to the place I want it to be. What is my goal? Certainly under 120. You know, it's one of those things where I like to lower it as much as I can before I'm going to cause a complication. But if I have to give you a number, it's below a systolic of under 120. The other thing that's important that doesn't get as much press but is equally important is treating someone's pain. Once you've made the diagnosis, remember that the pain is activating the sympathetic nervous system and making worse the patient's blood pressure and heart rate. And so some pain treatment is certainly warranted. You don't want to make them unconscious unless you're going to go right to the operating room because you want them to be able to tell you about new events that occur. But relieving, taking the edge off, making them feel better is certainly both important. So for me, it's really simple stuff. It's beta blockers, it's nipride, it's pain control, and that's how I start. And for these patients that do not require surgical intervention, how should we be thinking about their hypertension in a more chronic setting? Yeah, so it's a really important point. There was a recent publication looking, I think it was the Cleveland Clinic experience, about how aggressive you should be in the treatment of high blood pressure for patients who are admitted to the hospital. And the answer is, if you don't have any end organ damage, you actually shouldn't be that aggressive in the in-hospital setting. It doesn't actually have better outcomes. This patient is the opposite of that setting. 
This patient literally has a complication of blood pressure, which is aortic dissection, and so we want to make sure that we get the blood pressure appropriately controlled before the person goes home. Long-standing chronic control of blood pressure is key to outcomes here. The downstream effects, particularly in someone like this without a vascular complication, is that you want to avoid the development of an aneurysm. What you do surveillance for over time is the gradual expansion of the aorta. And so everything you can do to slow that process down so they do not need a procedure when the aorta crests a certain size, say six centimeters in the descending, five and a half in the ascending, is what you want to do to, to slow the adverse pathology. Well, thank you, Dr. Beckman, for this awesome podcast today. I think the take-home points that I'm getting from this are we should consider acute aortic pathology in all patients who have chest pain. You want to be examining their pulses in the upper extremities and getting bilateral blood pressures. Um, you want to contact your surgical colleagues early to determine if a patient needs urgent surgical management. Aggressive blood pressure control for hypertension with beta blockers, that's your first line therapy. And don't forget the pain control, which could be contributing to their tachycardia and hypertension.